mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. Woo! Can I get a hey? Hey! <laughs> oh my! On why? <laughs> <laughs> I've always wanted to do that. Uh, welcome to the Bailey Gifford stage. We are here live, doing a live talk up with an amazing guest today. But how are you today, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling nourished. Oh. Yeah, and sustained. Oh, wow. Uh, by art and by culture. And I've been feeling very grateful for books, mm. but also paintings and art, and the fact that museums have finally reopened finally. in the UK, and, um, and we're able to have exhibitions again, yep. and um, I have also realised, thanks to today's guest, um, about this idea that art, even though it seems very fixed, and um, like you think of a painting, it's kind of, you know, still and, and fixed in time, mm. but actually, because of the way that we interact as viewers, um, we can activate these artworks, and they can change over time, mm. and I really like this idea of returning to things, mm. and this week I was listening to an old record, because I got thinking after reading um, our guest book, um, about revisiting artworks that have meant a lot to you in your formative years, in your teens, in your early 20s. And I listened to Kate Bush's um, album. And, Which one? Uh, this woman's work, that album. From Hounds of Love. It's called Essential, oh. Essential World. Yes. And um, there is a track on it called A Deeper Understanding. Yes. And in that, she talks about turning to her computer she like a friend. She has an affair with her computer, doesn't she? Yeah, and she talks about turning to her computer like a friend. friend. And it got me thinking about how art has been like a friend to me. And um, even that song is kind of somebody that I will go back to and kind of lean on in times of need. And I think that is a lot of the subject matter that is within um, Olivia's book. Yes. So, um, shall we welcome... Yes, her? so we would like to welcome to Talk Art... Olivia Lang! Hi, hey. <laughs> we got a hey. How are you today, Olivia? Where do we find you in the world? You find me in the Barbican, in my studio flat, with quite a lot of art I love around me. Yeah, because there's a lot of a lot of well, there's a few films online where we go round your house and you've got a house in Suffolk and your place here in the Barbican, and you live with a lot of art. You are a collector at heart. I am a total magpie at heart, and also I'm blessed in being friends with lots of artists. So I've been given lots of things over the years and accumulated, which is just magical because it supports writing. It drives writing so much to be around physical art objects. And it also feels like a self-portrait. I've, I've always found myself with the art collecting is that it becomes a reflection of me and also a diary of my life. So I guess for you, like there's a painting behind you of Jay-Z, I guess for you, there's, is there a memory imbued in that painting, a special moment with the artist and how that came into your life? So much. That's um, it's a painting by Chantal Joffe, who I became friends with really. She read my book, The Lonely City. She asked me to sit for her. And we sort of began this friendship instantaneously that I came into her studio for the first time. And that painting was in there the first day and really I just lent on her over years and years until she gave it to me. You know, it's really funny talking about Chantal Joffe because um, we're here today to talk about Funny Weather, which is a collection of essays and um, texts that you wrote over a period of time. 2011 to 2019. And um, I, one of the favourite bits in the book is your, is your section on Chantal Joffe and your kind of connection to her. Because to me, what I love about your, your writing is that you kind of are creating these portraits of individuals that are almost artworks in their own right. You know, like, I, and I loved the description of, of you meeting her and you were, like, doing a portrait of her with words and she was going to do a portrait of you in paint. Can you talk a bit about that connection you have with her in that dynamic? Yeah, absolutely. That was an experiment that actually failed because um, 
you know, she could paint me in the time allotted in the studio, but I was trying to write on my laptop, you know, sort of tucked on my lap. And actually I had to go home and finish it. So my end of it was a bit rubbish. Um, but there was something really intense and immediate about the sense that we were both trying to capture people in different in different ways and, you know, using different materials, but trying to catch an essence that's continually fleeting, that the person you're sitting in front of isn't static at all. They're changing, they're carrying all kinds of things with them. They've got different moods. And I'm so fascinated by the way that portraits do that. There was a series Chantelle did where she painted herself every day after her marriage broke up. Those paintings are incredible. It's like a different face crawls up and puts itself in the canvas and sometimes they're so depressed and sometimes they're so you know miserable or enraged and those cells just peel off they're left behind but they live in history and that's what I find so fascinating about the painting. How long did she keep up the the painting for was it like a year did she set a rule for how many portraits she would make? It was one a day and I think it wasn't quite a year, but the last one of it is amazing. So they're all, she's got a hoodie on and they're all in fluorescent light and they look really, um, you know, miserable and raw and excoriating. But the last one, um, we'd been to the Bonnard show and she went back and painted the final portrait and she looks almost regal. It's like she's just in a different phase of life. Suddenly it's very beautiful and her neck's very long and upright and, you just see this sort of resilient figure gazing back at you. It's extraordinary. I guess, I guess that's art as therapy in some ways. I guess she channeled anxieties and her feelings of like, loss and bereavement for her relationship into her artworks. And, and what, we, what we find in your book is so many stories about people, and, and you've actually got called it art in an emergency, about how art can be something that you turn to in an emergency, is something that you look for that can actually bring you out of the depths of something traumatic totally and you know not just personally traumatic politically traumatic as well i think art is this like amazing force for making sense of difficult conditions difficult situations racism homophobia misogyny all of these different things but also the griefs and shames we carry around with us all of that can be poured into the art object but also it's not just about the artist making it it's about the viewer it's about the person who comes to see the painting or see the sculpture that they can bring their kind of cares and burdens to it and feel companioned by an art object feel like there's a friendship with an art object like Robert was saying about Kate Bush and I think that happens to all of us but maybe we're kind of embarrassed to admit it I've always been really into this idea, Olivia, that like art has the power to kind of change the world and almost like right the wrongs. But what I loved in your book was that I saw it in a different way, because yes, it does obviously hold the power to bring about change. But actually, you actually in your introduction, you say, um, you know, friend, it's kind of up to you because it's true. Like the viewer has to want to take action. And I love this idea that artworks and all kinds of art forms, in a way, are there to kind of give a space to think and to create a kind of access point for you to improve yourself, to change, to try and bring about social change or, or something like that. Yeah, totally. And to be nourished by it, I think, you know, the example I give all the time, and I'm sure you've both been there, is Derek Jarman's garden in Dungeness, that this is this artwork that outlived him. He died of AIDS, and yet there is this sort of vibrant fertile beautiful garden that exists as this kind of space of resistance but also nourishment for people of the future for people of a future that he didn't even inhabit anymore and he, he's an art hero of yours right you have a holy trinity you have Derek Jarman Freddie Mercury <laughs> and David Bowie are your like your absolute heroes they're my absolute heroes but then I put a picture on Instagram last night of um Derek Jarman, Andy Warhol, and David Wonrovich, and I was like, this is my holy trinity, so maybe I've got two holy trinities. <laughs> it's a movable feast, yeah. I, um, I remember reading your, reading your introduction, which ended up going into the reissue of Modern Nature, Derek Jarman's incredible book about that garden in Dungeness, and I actually wrote to you afterwards on Instagram, and it was because I was so blown away by that essay, and I loved this idea that, like, as a, as a young person, as a child, effectively, you were, you were kind of inspired by his work. And you use that description of your sister being a kind of unexpected, unlikely, you know, fan of his work yeah. or even receiving the work. And it got me thinking a lot about things like Derek Jarman's um, Pet Shop Boys music video and how through popular culture in the 80s, we were all kind of inspired by art without totally realising what it was we were seeing. 
Can you speak a bit about when you were growing up and that kind of connection you had to him? Yeah, totally. I mean, I grew up, I had a gay mother and, you know, 1980s, AIDS crisis, Section 28, very grim era. And, you know, we were this weird family of three, me, my mum and my sister. And this is the era of Channel 4 just playing the most wild stuff late at night. And so Kitty, who was two years younger than me, would sit up and watch Derek Jarman's Edward II and then be like, I've just seen this amazing film. And you're right, the, the gateway drug was really pop culture, that videos at that time were being made by such interesting directors. So you just had this sense all the time of, you know, a pulse that you had to follow and catch up on. And I think music for me was really a way of doing that, that people would talk in interviews with Melody Maker about artists or writers they loved, and I'd go and check them out. And the sense of tracking stuff down was so exciting. Why the title Funny Weather? I felt like the weather was getting pretty funny. <laughs> I mean, it felt like physically the weather, the climate change, but also just generally the political weather was getting really weird. And I was writing a col column for Freeze magazine at the time that was just trying to use art as a way of making sense of a very weird and very sinister political moment that just got more and more sinister and terrifying as, as the years went on. It was, it was a really prescient thing in a way, that title, because you could never really have guessed where it was going to head. And it, it did get um, so wild, didn't it? And it's continuing to, to be so. What was it like writing that as a kind of almost like a diary, I guess, like, uh, you know, over a period of time? Was that something that you were used to doing or was it a very special project for you? It felt like a real gift to be able to write Freeze then. Um you know, there was there was so much going on. It's like, I think it starts with the refugee crisis and then, you know, Brexit happens, Trump comes to power, all of these horrendous things were happening. And I felt all the time, like I was on Twitter a lot and the news was just smashing over my head, more and more bad news. And what I wanted was a way of processing it, of thinking about it, of maybe allowing some of the feelings that I had around it to settle. And artworks kept being the way to do that. Like, Philip Guston's clan paintings or Anna Mendieta's amazing photograph reenactments of rape scenes, these, these sort of very visceral, high-risk artworks, David Wonorovich as well, became a place that I could really try and think about what was happening and, you know, potentially had to resist what was happening, but also to just allow what was happening to sort of land and make sense of felt vital. I think what's so brilliant about reading your book is you, we, we realise that we have such an affinity with your kind of cause. It feels like we're on the same sort of cause. And I want, I want to read a section of your, uh, the beginning of the book where you say, um, we're so often told that art can't really change anything, but I think it can. It shapes our ethical landscapes. It opens us up to the interior lives of others. It is a training ground for possibility. It makes plain inequalities and it offers other ways of living. And that, like, speaks exactly to what we're saying, exactly to about representation, how important art is, because it shows who exists in the world. And until you're seen on the gallery wall, you can have your existence denied. But when you're shown in art, whether that be film, whether that be writing or, or museums, exhibitions, you exist. And, and I feel like what you, your kind of drive for art is exactly aligned with ours. I'm... Very excited and pleased by that, because I just think we're told so often that art is this rarefied pursuit or it's something for people who've got a lot of money to do or, you know, it's something for the middle classes to spend their weekends. And I just don't think that's true at all. I think art is for all of us and art is a living force. Yeah, but artists also aren't making artwork for collectors for people like no. just to kind of see in one space. They're making art because they have a message. That's their story they want to get out there. So they want as many people as possible to see it. You know, we have this whole thing about gallery systems where people feel they're locked out of the gallery system. They have to apologise if they want to go in. They don't want to go in. But the fact is, they want you in there. Artists want you to see their art because they want that connection. Yeah, I've been thinking about this loads. We were talking just before we started about Charlie Porter's amazing book, What Artists Wear. I was thinking about how artists... You know, they're, they're making spaces of resistance, they're making different kinds of worlds, they're making maybe utopias. And 
at the same time, they've got to engage with the system that we're in, with the gallery system, with the museum system, because it, it's absolutely vital that their work is seen and that you, the viewer, can engage with it. So that sort of sense of access is so key, and especially after this year where we've all been, you know, in our caves, separate, unable to look at things, I've just felt such a craving to be back into a room where I can see the things that people have made, like little communication devices sort of pulsing through time and across space to to make contact with other people yeah well can i just about communication devices on your cover you've chosen a david wanirovich photograph we touched on that just briefly of a man of himself a self-portrait with his like big teeth and he's covered in dirt and that is coded there there's a message in there there's a message of a very political message in this photograph what, why did you choose this photograph and, and how, how important is this image to you Oh my God, I mean, that image is so, it's so important to me. David Ronorovich is really my favourite artist and he was he was the central figure in The Lonely City, the book I wrote before Funny Weather. So, you know, I've been thinking about him for a long time and that one just felt like it really, you know, the AIDS slogan, silence equals death. I think that image really captures how the art object is language, is life. The art object is the thing that you can declare yourself with, that you can say, I, I am here, I exist. I do not agree to, I do not consent to this situation that is happening. It's such a work from the AIDS crisis. It feels like it captures the rage and fury and terror of that moment. But it's also just so beautiful, this sense of a person sort of buried in dirt, a person vanishing, a person sort of immortality. It moves me so deeply and I just I couldn't believe that the David Wonorovich estate let me use it on the cover and still like pinching myself about that. You're such you're such a, a queer ally Olivia and and you know you, you said your mother was gay and growing up in the 80s and section 28 and and you have such a, a desire to tell queer stories and throughout this book uh, throughout the, your book ours as well but throughout your book there's so much information there's so much education what what is the drive for that? What why is the queer narrative something that you're really drawn to? I mean, I'm a non-binary person, and like you say, I, I grew up in a gay household in a very homophobic era. So, it, it's my home. It's the queer world is where I come from. It, it that is my sort of take on culture and existence, and I think those stories matter so much to me. Those those artists who have often been pushed to one side, whose work has been described as too camp, too frivolous, not serious enough, too serious, all, all of those sort of messaging about not being valid. Um, th those are the artists that have meant the most to me, Derek Jarman, Wonorovich, um, they're the people who've really sustained me through my life. And I want to share that, I want to sort of share that passionate feeling about it. I um, first got into art because I read a book by Hayden Herrera on the life of Frida Kahlo and it was before I'd actually ever seen Frida's yeah. paintings and it was in about 1994 that I read it in the school library and it was one of the biggest gifts <laughs> in my life and I think in a way like you had Derek Jarman in your teens in the way that I had Frida and the narrative of that and it, it's amazing how that can then inform so much of what goes on after that but it got me thinking about how even though that book really influenced me um, I often found art writing and criticism very impenetrable and very like confusing and mm -hmm. instead of unlocking keys or inspiring me to go and investigate further it used to like almost want to stop me from even being interested in art therefore mm -hmm. I didn't study art history I gave up making art you know from a really young age and what I love about this book is that even though you're talking about people like not, not all of them but there are there are the kind of a lot of greats um, in history, in art history, in here, like Basquiat, Agnes Mar Martin, David Hockney, Joseph Cornell, Robert Rauschenberg, Georgia O'Keeffe, and so on. But when you read your essays on these artists, it's like I've never even heard of them before, and yeah. that you discover this whole new <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. way of looking at them. Well, there's all these little like tidbits, these oh. really exciting little nuggets. You're like, oh my god, I didn't know that. I've got that now with me. I can hold on to that. Definitely. And Charlie has that in his book, yes. um, the one about what artists wear, yeah. because you find out all these little yeah. kind of very personal the details. Juicy. And I yeah. love the idea that like Dali pushed over the projector, you know, for Joseph, the Joseph Cornell, yeah, film. Cornell and like all these That's kind of stories chapter, that you yeah. would never know. So how how important is it for you to approach writing like that? Do you feel a kind of responsibility and a duty to these people that you admire? 
Oh God, yeah, absolutely. And also I hate art speak. I hate that sort of language that just feels like it's about making a gap between the person and the work. It's about making it as unintelligible to them as possible. And it, it's pointless. And I don't think art is particularly long for it. I think it comes from gallerists and curators and, you know, it, it's sort of an art world artifact that we don't really need. What I'm interested in is what is the artist trying to do? What conditions are they in? Maybe inimical conditions. How are they trying to resist that? How are they trying to reframe that? Like, what are the stakes of the fight that they're engaged in? That seems really essential to me. How are they working? What materials are they using? Like, the physical pleasures of the art object are so rarely written about, and that seems really weird, the sort of sensuality of it. So I feel like I want to show them in their life but also not just be like this is a biography about this person I, I want to show them in the act of making and I want to really talk about the things they make as real things that live in the world and that have real impacts on real people the, the sense of reality and I think this is where there's a real sort of common ground between me and Charlie's but we're, we're interested in the real thing and maybe the ideas can be embedded inside that because it's not that I don't want ideas at all of course I do but I want them to emerge out of something that actually exists and that feels really crucial. Alan Bennett has a line in the History Boys where Hector says to one of the students that when you read a good book and you connect to it it feels like the writer is putting their hand out and holding yours and connecting with you and I feel like through your writing but what you're also allowing is you're a conduit to these stories that I'm also getting holding the hand of Rauschenberg. I want to read a bit about Rauschenberg and I was like, I didn't even know this about him. So he, he set up this thing called the Rauschenberg Overseas Cultural Interchange where no one would really support him and he did it by himself and he went round the world, Russia, places like that, and took cultural shows with local artists and set up this kind of dialogue. And he said he, he felt he had strong... I feel strong in my beliefs that a one-on-one -on -one contact through art contains potent, peaceful powers and is the most non-elitist way to share exotic and common information, seducing us into creative, mutual understandings for the benefit of all. Well, that blew my mind. I didn't know that, and through you I've discovered that, but Rauschenberg had this drive to communicate to everybody through his art, even when he was like at his biggest selling for lots of money, he wanted to still get there with everyone. That's that kind of the democracy of art is so inspiring, exciting. And also he sold his personal collection to be able to fund it. You know, he sold off Warhols and things that he'd gathered in the 1960s very cheaply, but that were suddenly worth a lot of money to, to do that. So he really sort of put his money where his mouth was in a way that again, I think is really inspiring. I can sort of imagine you two doing that international, but I think you should do it. I think you should take the talk art show globally to every country. <laughs> well, I feel, I, I feel like you went locally to like, yeah, every country and you sat there with like artists from that country and had like a festival. It'd be incredible. Yeah, and that's actually what I really love about doing the podcast is that a bit like your essays, they become like portraits in their own right of, of individuals. And I think I love just talking to to people because everyone has a story and like yeah. everyone has a completely unique take on the world. Yeah. Can we talk a bit about when you were um, in your early 20s, you were an environmental activist and you, you lived in, um, in forests. Off the grid. Off the grid. And you were, you were um, you know, campaigning against those forests being cut <laughs> down for roads. And can you talk a bit about that early formative kind of political activism that you did and how that's related to what you've gone on to do? Because I find your writing so politically engaged in a way that I don't necessarily know if everyone realises, because I think all the things that you highlight are so important to do with humanity and taking care of the world and all of those themes. Yeah, I, I feel like... Um... It is really political. I, I would definitely say that I'm a very political writer. Um, and I'm not involved in that kind of very physical activism anymore that I was doing in my 20s. But the same sort of spirit informs what I'm doing now, that it's a sense of believing in the possibility of change, believing in the possibility even tentatively of a kind of utopia and wanting to work towards that, while at the same time being realistic about the conditions we're in and how impossible they are to resist but at the same time I think it's really crucial I keep saying it's really crucial it's, no, you're right it is really crucial but um so there's a few things in the book that um well first of all I want to know how you find these nuggets of gold 
that, you know, I, re I read a lot, Rob reads a lot, but there's so many things in here, I'm like, I didn't know that. I know. Where, your research the is research. phenomenal. How do you, who are you talking to? <laughs> How do you get this, Olivia? Uh, I gossip a lot. Um, but also I just read a lot. I read a lot of biographies. Um, I read a lot of diaries, like Andy Warhol's diary is just the most amazing resource because he met every single person in the world ever. And he always recorded it in his diary. So if you want to talk about anybody, I mean, Donald Trump, anyone, they all wash up in that diary. So, you know, I've got a lot of resources like that that I can sort of check and see, like, did he meet Joseph Cornell? Or what did he say about Basquiat? Oh, they went and got their nails done together. That's brilliant. I want that. You know, I'm sort of good at going out and like that anecdote really tells you something about this person or this kind of bit of information about this shows them being tender or this shows them being anxious in a way that you didn't realize. And that's the stuff I'm looking for all the time. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com And you have photos of Andy Warhol all over your house as an inspiration. <laughs> I just love Andy Warhol. I just find him very endearing. Yeah. Who who is your art? Like we talked about your art heroes, but your art heroes who are living or who have passed, but you've actually been able to meet. I mean, I love Chantel. She, she's such an inspiring person to to be friends with because I think, you know, we're being maybe a bit starry eyed about being an artist, but a lot of an artist's life is struggle. A lot of it is very frustrating and boring and isolated and you know you have these moments where you're talking and it's brilliant but a lot of it is grueling and I think having friends who are artists who are in the same sort of invisible factory is is helpful and my friend the filmmaker Matt Wolfe who made an amazing documentary about Arthur Russell the musician Arthur Russell makes very interesting films he's doing one about Pee Wee Herman at the moment it's another person who I just feel like I need that kind of relationship where I can where I can talk to other artists when it's not fun and when I've sort of lost the thread of what I'm doing. Yeah, Chantel actually has a show opening this Friday at Victoria Miro Gallery in London, if you want to check that out. I really want to interview Chantel for Talk Art at some point. Absolutely. I, I love, love, love. Yeah, Please we might need do. to lean on you. <laughs> yeah. One of my favourite bits in the book is the Agnes Martin um, chapter. Can you talk about your relationship with her? Because there was that amazing bit in it where it talks about this grid and the emptiness of this grid and how it like infuriated visitors to the point where they would like get out a crayon and actually like draw on the painting like and vandalise it. But like I'd never heard of that and Agnes Martin to me is a kind of like holy grail like mm. whenever I've seen the exhibitions it's just extraordinary mm. what an amazing human can you talk about your adventure like exploring her work and life oh god she's she's the most amazing I mean that's an artist I really really wish that I'd met because she's so dogged and she's so herself and and just refused to be pinned down at one point somebody asked her and um, how do you feel as a woman artist Agnes and she went I'm not a woman I'm a doorknob I just, I love that sense of like, you can't tell me who I am. I'm I'm totally not taking that. And her paintings are sort of like that too, that she um she made these abstract canvases, they're, they're grid patterns, six by six, six foot by six foot, the size of a human body, as if you could walk into them. And they're these rigorous grids that she did with a ruler, horizontal lines, vertical lines. So close up, you can absolutely see the penciled grid, but you take a step back and they turn into this sort of shimmering, gauzy, mysterious, very, very beautiful space that that feels open. She she said that she wanted them to incite feelings of love and joy and happiness, these kind of abstract emotions. 
And yet, you're right, people got really mad about them. People vandalised them with crayons. But my favourite one is that somebody smashed an ice cream cone into the grid. Some sense of like, why is this work in a gallery? Why is this work that's sort of nothing in a gallery? I don't know. I think it just incites some real passionate feeling in people. But at the same time, for, for maybe the majority, they allow you to step out of the everyday world. They allow you to experience a world that has no limits and no horizons and that can feel like a very beautiful, but perhaps also a frightening space to visit. Perhaps that's why people get so angry. Yeah. Well, you're definitely an educator and it, it feels like you're stepping into something uh, like profound whenever we go through your book. And there's also, it feels like a great painting, this book, because mm. a great painting you can return to again and again and again. You'll see something different. And this book... I've read a few times now and I look at certain sections, I'm like, I didn't read that before. But a few things I want to pick out that just blew my mind is that there used to be a, an Elizabethan bear pit that got torn down at some point. So I went straight online to look that up that was on the Thames that got done by developers. Uh, David Hockney was nicknamed Mr. Wiz by Christopher that. Isherwood. And I want to be called Mr. Wiz now. I thought that was inspiring. Someone needs to make a movie of that. I mean, that is such a good title for a film. Amazing title. Keith Vaughan's last diary entry blew my mind so he committed suicide took a bottle of barbiturates and then as he was as he after he'd done it he started writing his diary entry saying i've just like committed suicide this feels a bit kind of existential having an existential crisis about it but being totally calm and he goes it doesn't feel like they're working yet it hasn't been a total loss at least i did some good and then it trails off and that's his, literally his last diary entry. And I was like, I didn't even know that existed. And suddenly I was like, I looked up online. I was like, that's it. He was writing that to the point where he literally died. Oh, that yeah. was, it blew my mind. And then was your mind blown by the paintings as well? Because I just think those paintings are extraordinary. Incredible, incredible. And also the, the shyness that he had to show them and how he said at one point that would he feel pr proud to stand next to these nude drawings and nude paintings that he did. No, he felt this kind of shame that everyone carries around as a, a queer person, but yet he would happily stand next to his landscapes. That kind of made me my heart break. Yeah, it's such a heartbreaking story. And he's another one of those like massive outsized talents that just didn't get his dues in his lifetime. There's something sort of considered unseemly. Wait, but I'm not supposed to ask a question, but I want to ask a question because me and Robert have both answered it. What, Russell, what, what was your, like, gateway into art? Uh, cartoons, pop art. So uh, loving mm. cartoons and comics as a kid and then seeing Keith Haring and Roy Lichtenstein in a museum and going, oh, I haven't got to grow up. I can just still like these, but I can now go to a museum and be an adult but still like, <laughs> look at cartoons and comic books. That was my route in. And then the YBAs when I was 16, young British artists, that, you know, that made me feel like I finally understood what the word contemporary meant. I'd never heard it before then. It meant the now. And suddenly I was like, oh, I can be part of Andy Warhol's factory. All these things I've been reading about, which you never can. I'm like, oh, I, can, I might be able to get into that factory now. Yeah. yeah. That's sort of what it's about, <laughs> is getting into the factory. It does feel like that. Like, how can you be a part of these things that you love? They're not, it's not separate. It's not just something that exists in a museum. It's like, how do you make this your life? Yeah. I remember um, seeing Sarah Lucas and Tracy Emin's shop and just thinking it was like the coolest, coolest thing. You, and what, I didn't, didn't get go, to go, no, no, but I heard about I it. And Can it became like this narrative. And I remember thinking like, they're alive now. You know, and that's what's so exciting about contemporary art is the artists are alive. You know, you can meet them. Yeah. You can actually get to be, you know, hear those stories, which I just think is the most exciting yeah. thing. Can I ask you something? So A, why did you first want to be a writer? I know it's quite a massive question, but like, you're such a good writer. And it's kind of like, I wonder if that was something that you knew very early on that you wanted to do. Um, I did always want to be a writer, but then, you know, I had this sort of it very erratic 20s. So I dropped out of university. I was doing an English degree at Sussex and I dropped out of university to become an activist. Um, and then I was living up trees and then I had real burnout, as lots of activists do. Um, so then I was living on my own sort of semi-feral and then I trained to be a herbalist and spent like five years treating patients before I thought I really do want to write. And then I went to journalism school, did one of those one year adult education courses and miraculously found my way into journalism and then lost my job. So it is all like, my life is just a series of kind of real hiccups that have ended up putting me where I wanted to be all along, which is 
writing books and being fairly free to write books, but I definitely didn't take a conventional Oxbridge route to get there. And the other question I've got related to that is, what is it like having to do these like tours where you're suddenly, because you're a writer, it's quite a solitary, quiet, you know, pursuit with you in the page. And then suddenly you have to be this kind of public facing person. Like for Russell and I, we both were acting and singing and doing things as kids. But like, is it something that comes naturally to you or do you find it quite an awkward thing to have to then promote the book? I, t- I mean, this one is very nice, but yeah, I do. I find it. I find it terrifying, and also I think this might sound funny being a writer, but I'm always struggling with articulacy, and I feel like I'm writing in, in a sort of wrestling with trying to put into language things that aren't in language, and it's hard enough doing that privately on the page, but to then, you know, be propelled out and have to speak over and over again in in language face-to-face is something that you become a writer to avoid doing. So it is hard. But at the same time, you know, these things really matter to me. I'm really passionate about them. And I I want to talk to people about art and especially how art belongs to all of us. So it it feels worth doing. But, yeah, good question. I do not always love it. There's a, a profound, talking about profound things in the, in the book, there's one that I wanted to read about Jean-Michel Basquiat, which I, I suddenly thought that just sums up Jean-Michel Basquiat, but also the current climate and how times haven't changed. But he says, in the, well, you said, in the spring of 1982, a rumour started swilling around New York. The gallerist Ananina Noisy had some kind of boy genius locked in her basement, a black kid, 21, wild and inscrutable as Caspar Hauser, making masterpieces out of nowhere to the accompaniment of Ravel's bolero. Oh, Christ, Jean-Michel Basquiat said when he heard. If I was white, they would just call it an artist in residence. Mm. And that, <laughs> I was like, yeah, and times haven't changed. There's that, that sort of thing, just, I was so, like, amazed to read that and so pleased to read that and so kind of, like, sad to read that at the same time. But also Jean-Michel's, speaking of articulacy, Jean-Michel's articulacy, his ability to just say it how it is, I think really cuts through there as well, that he didn't want to play along with that game. He didn't want to be like the new primitive. And he, he was so educated, hyper-intelligent, thoughtful. You know, he's not making work from nowhere. He's not an outsider artist. He's an educated artist. And he was so furious about that system of racism, white supremacy, the the fact that if he left a party with Andy Warhol, he couldn't get picked up by a cab. He might be wearing the most expensive suit in New York, but he would still be ignored by cab drivers. That fury and humiliation doesn't just leak, it pours, it gushes into his paintings. And, you know, we can still feel it now. That that exhibition at the Barbican, which I bet you both saw a few years ago, was like the room sort of vibrated with the urgency of the message and it's it's not a message that has in any way diminished and he is so ruthlessly articulate about capturing what white supremacy looks like and what it feels like from his perspective as a black man and again just I think he's such a luminous artist. Also in this, sorry, just the hand-holding. So I was then like, so Wild and Inscrutable is Caspar Hauser. I was like, well, who's Caspar Hauser? So then I went online and then so it, 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 doors, open doors, open doors, open doors. So suddenly I like, looked at Caspar Hauser and people might know, I didn't know who he was. Do you know who Caspar no, no, Hauser no, I is? No, didn't know. So he was, he was like a, a wild man that turned up or he was a child that turned up and they thought he'd been brought up in the woods away from everyone, but actually he'd lived in a, a one-metre box and he drunk stuff, he, got, he woke up and there was food and drink by him and he drunk it and some days it was a bit bitter and he fell asleep and woke up and his nails and hair had been cut, but he'd been kept in this box. So this, I was like, well, what is this story? Because you don't <laughs> touch on that, but can you just talk about Caspar Hauser for a second? Because I don't know, I, that again was like, what? That's really funny because when I always have a battle with editors where they're like, can you explain every single thing? And I'm like, have you heard of the internet? people will look it up for themselves if they're interested. And that I want people to do that. I want it to feel like there's lots and lots of material and you don't have to follow it all up, but there are things there if you want to. And, you know, Caspar Hauser, he, he became this sort of very fascinating figure because then scientists were like, 
well, now this child can tell us so much about how we learn language or how we inherit things because he's brought up without any kind of family or education. But also he was a real person and that that sense of him as a real person who's sort of betrayed by science I find very haunting so he's always he's always stuck in my mind because of that and I think that that there are similar things at play sometimes with how the white art world talk about Basquiat or have the sense of Basquiat as somebody who's come out of nowhere when he's actually got deep roots into all kinds of African-American and European culture. Casper Hauser a science experiment then, like a medieval science experiment? No, 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 but then once he came out of the box, once he was found, scientists kind of took him over. He, nobody knows who was who imprisoned Casper Hauser as a child, but scientists then sort of used him as an experiment, which is even worse for Casper Hauser. Yeah. Um, there was a word in the Basquiat chapter, which I'd never heard of for some reason, which was um, graphomania, which I loved that word so much. And this <laughs> idea of like, you know, drawing words or, or that kind of very intensity of, of um, drawing. And it got me thinking about your own use of language in, in some of the, um, you know, uh, portraits of these artists, the way that you'll bring up words that they use or that they love. Like, was that something that you enjoyed? Like, even in the studio of Chantal Joffe, you, you start documenting all the writing that appears over time, over her walls of her studio. Is that something that you love as a wordsmith yourself? Like. Yeah, I, I love it. And also it's like the anecdotes that we were talking about earlier. Those are the ways that you sort of, those little details, little superficial details are kind of how you capture a portrait, aren't they? And to me, trying to sort of pin down Chantal, I don't necessarily want to describe what she looks like, but it feels like her essence that she's writing, you know, Sylvia Plath or, um, I don't know, the, the words that she's got painted on her studio. If you tell her a book that she likes the sound of, she just scribbles it on the studio wall. So it's not just a record of what she's interested in, but also like a historical record of the last few years. I can see things that we talked about a long time ago that are still kind of archived in that space. Um, yeah, and then particular words from, if it, it's an artist from the early 20th century, then some of the language that they use that's obsolete feels very beautiful to me to restore. And with somebody like Derek Jarman, you know, he often has these like, biblical flourishes or he's working on Edward II so he's using language from that and it just adds richness it just adds a sort of depth and richness to the portrait to put that kind of stuff in I love it. Well we also talked about the fact that you you both eat a hummingbird bakery yes. muffins and we had this conversation <laughs> and he was like and Rob was like well, I, I, what does that do for the piece and it is an anecdote that makes it more personal but also it you know, this book's going to outlive us all and it sets it in time, you know, and Hummingbird Bakery might not survive, but it does something. It gives it its kind of nuance. Whereas, you know, we read books about these artists we love and we would hear about the Colony Club, for example, you know, and at yeah. the time people would be like, why are you writing about that? But actually it's like, it sets you in that thing. It sets you in the time and it will, like, it's art history. You having them not is art problems. history. <laughs> Those cupcakes caused a lot of problems though because then everyone else was like, but Chantel, why don't you bring me the muffins from Hummingbird Bakery? Uh, rivalry. <laughs> <laughs> so we should get on to our uh, final questions and then we have some questions from the audience. But uh, there are two questions that we do ask every episode we do a talk about. The first one is, if you could do an art heist, if you could have any work of art for yourself, anything in the world, nicely, you could steal it nicely, what would it be and why? And we'll help you. Yeah. We'll bring you cranes we'll do and anything you want. We'll anything be there. you need. Yes. Oh my god! Oh my god. Oh, anything. I feel overwhelmed with greed. Um, but maybe some sort of medieval religious painting, you know, like some sort of Christ and Mary, one of those beautiful narrow medieval faces. I don't know, something like that. I think I would, I would really like to just live with. Yeah, maybe we could take it from yeah, the Vatican. Anywhere. If you're up for a Vatican house. Vatican oh, right. heist. Ooh. Love that. That's good. Um, <laughs> the other um, question we ask every guest is, what is your favourite colour? Blue. Blue. And why? Yellow. yellow. Oh. No, wait, yellow. Well, look behind, behind you. you. Blue and yellow directly <laughs> behind you, yeah. <laughs> and why, why, why those um, colours? What is it that you're drawn to? I love yellow. Anything yellow, I sort of feel intense desire to, to own. I don't know. It, it feels like it's not 
I feel like blue is a color that's inside me and yellow is a color that's outside me and yellow is a color that I desire to have close to me, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Amazing. Yeah. Well, we, we all both have an affinity with pink. We thought he was going to say pink. We've got our pink book and your pink book together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We look good together. You know, I like it. Something I really love as well, there's a bit, I just want to quickly say this, there's a bit in the David Hockney bit where he's talking about perspective and how at one point he was painting with a certain perspective where it was quite fixed and then he got annoyed with it because he realised that wasn't actually capturing the real experience of life. And what I thought was so interesting about that is because what you were just saying about well, you were trying to get a portrait of Chantal and I love that you can learn from different disciplines and that like, you know, painting is linked to writing and writing is linked to drawing and drawing is linked to music and that actually all the art forms should be in discussion with each other and not have all these barriers, you know, which, which over time, for loads of different reasons, often um, capitalist reasons probably, and like trying to make things feel like they're worth more or, you know, have a value that's somehow rarefied. But I love that throughout the book, there's all these moments that I feel like if you're a writer and you're reading this book, you're going to learn from the artist. But if you're an artist, you're actually going to learn from your words, you know, and the way mm. that you use words. Mm -hmm. Is that something that, that as a kind of final thinking point is, is important to you? So much, and I'm so pleased you picked up that bit because that felt really important to me when I was reading about Hockney and was like, oh, now I understand what he's doing here. He, the sense of I've got as far as I can get with what I'm doing, these, these very realistic portraits, and now I need to push through into new ground. And I think I'm very, ex I always want to push through into new ground. And I'm very excited by finding instances where artists did that, where they had the courage to do that, or the sort of the nows to do that or the intense frustration to do that. So th those moments kind of are front and centre for me. And it really opened up my sense of being able to make sense of Hockney's later work, which I don't necessarily find immediately as easy. But once I'd sort of understood what he was grappling with, it, it cracks it open for me. And I think it cracks it open for readers as well. So I'm always seeking to do that if I can when I'm writing. Your next book that you're working on now is to do with the environment and nature and I know that through your Instagram um, people can visit that which is at Olivia Language yeah, but you have an Instagram. amazing love of gardening and plants and nature can you speak a bit about that oh um, yeah and also your shed at the back of your garden <laughs> I've noticed is Derek Jarman Dungeness Black you've painted it so it looks like Derek Jarman's house at the end of your garden <laughs> No, I don't live in that house anymore, sadly. But um, yeah, it was Dungeness Black. Um, yeah, I, I just I wanted to write I wanted to write something really inspired by modern nature. That just you know I've written this book about freedom, everybody, which has just come out, and it ends with this idea of like what world could we build? And then I was like, well, what world would I want to live in? What what kind of paradise would I want to live in? For me, the paradise is the garden, and I wanted to think about all of the queer utopias that have been built around gardens, Sissinghurst and um, Cedric Morris's Benton End and obviously Dungeness and these different places that have been like a utopia outside of the world or an antagonistic utopia. There's this amazing line by um, in Hamilton Finley where he says that people mistake the garden as a retreat when actually it's an attack. And I love that idea of it as being this sort of site of a totally contrary set of principles that that might be more just or might be more free or might be more pleasurable that that seems like an exciting place to go for me at the moment amazing well we've got time for a couple of quick questions but just to let you know there are signed copies of tall car and funny weather alongside copies of other books from hay festivals online bookshop everyone so we've got a couple of questions uh this one is about accessing galleries benny says any tips for getting over the fear of entering galleries that aren't big spaces like the Tate, they can feel pretty intimidating to me. Olivia, any tips? Uh, I am going to my first show tomorrow, which is the Peter Ujo show at Maureen Paley, and I feel very nervous about it, so I really vibe with this. Um, I think just take your time. It's the only thing that I'm sort of saying to myself is you don't have to rush into all those spaces. You don't have to feel like you've got to go everywhere immediately. So, yeah, it's okay to, to go slowly and to respect your own need to have space. Amazing. The other question that we have is, what do you think about the arts being squeezed off the curriculum for many young people in both primary and secondary? I think it is a total travesty and I think children need lots of free play and art teaching at the moment more than they need anything else. That feels to me like 
that space where you can just explore and open to ideas that happens in art teaching is, again, utterly crucial. No, it's, it's offensive. I find it incredibly offensive. It's... I also think you need all of the different elements of schooling in order to inform each other. You know, you can't just have one thing because you don't have space or time to then respond. But everything is the way. arts. Everything. We sit yeah. on these chairs, that's made by a craftsman. We drink for these glasses, that's made by someone. You know, the, 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 the optics that have gone into looking at you on screen now, that's, that's some artistic merit has gone into totally, that. Yeah. And you're denying all that and saying it's superfluous and frivolous. It's like you're denying the existence of what we are. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you so much. Yes. It's been such a privilege to talk to you. And thank you for your writing, because I think it's such a generous thing to be a writer. And it's such a solitary, mm -hmm. strange kind of solo pursuit. But with your work, you're reaching out to people all over the world. And honestly, you're making me excited about art in a way that I didn't think I was, you know, like looking back at old figures that I thought I knew everything about and I knew nothing about them, you know, and you, you're kind of reinventing all of that for yeah. me. So thank you so much. Reintroducing it all, yeah. yeah. Um, oh, I thank you so much, both of you. It's just been lovely and I'm going to buy the talk art book this very afternoon. <laughs> thank you very much. Well, uh, everyone, that was uh, Olivia Lang. Uh, Funny Weather, Art in an Emergency is available everywhere now, as is the talk art book. Everything you want to know about contemporary art, but we're afraid to ask. And we have had the best time. Thank yeah, you very much. Can you. I hey, get a hey? On why? Thank you very much. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com